Good morning. Today's reading is from Deuteronomy 4, 15 through 31. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he swore that I should not cross the Jordan, and that I should not enter the good land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. For I must die in this land. I must not go over to the Jordan. But you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and of stone, the work of human hands, that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. This is the word of God. In case you didn't realize this, uh, self-awareness is a pretty important thing. Self-awareness. It's, it's helpful in the physical realm in, in the sense that we, we need to recognize when we need a shower, right? Or when your clothes don't match. Or when the, or when the person you're talking to is sending subtle but persistent signs that they need a little more personal space. Uh, self-awareness is helpful in the emotional realm. So it's, it's good, it's, it's necessary that you recognize that you feel angry in a given moment and, and should probably not reply to that email or hammer out your thoughts on that Facebook post. To, it, it's good to notice you've been cared for. And you should probably communicate gratitude or, or to realize that you're spent and should take time to rest. We need, we need self-awareness in, emotion, in an emotional sense. And, and people who lack self-awareness tend to have a lot of trouble in relationships. Maybe, maybe you've noticed this or, or even experienced this in your own life. You, you end up offending people or, or pushing people away and, and you may have no idea why. And, and you struggle to know, how, how do I even grow and change if I don't know why? If you, if you lack self-awareness in these kinds of ways, in physical senses, emotional senses, the consequences are significant. But friend, if you lack self-awareness in a spiritual sense, the consequences of that are immeasurably more significant. 
Because spiritual self-awareness is a matter of life and death. And eternally so. Romans 14 verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Are you aware of that? For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Are you aware of that? Your your eternal life, no joke, (laughs) depends on having the spiritual self-awareness to know where do I stand before my creator and my king. They're the one to whom you will give an account. And, and sadly, as I, even as I say that, I think that many are, are more aware of their physical appearance in a bathroom mirror than they are of how they appear or where they stand in the eyes of God. We need to cry out with a psalmist, Psalm 139, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and and know my thoughts. Give me self-awareness and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul is getting at in in 2 Corinthians 13.5. The necessity of spiritual self-awareness. Examine yourselves, Paul says. Not a suggestion. Not a recommendation, a command. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now please know as I'm saying that, neither Paul nor I are not talking about evaluating whether you're a good person, okay? I'm talking about discerning whether you are responding, not not in the past or hope to in the future, in the present, whether you're responding to Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the salvation he has won for us through his person and work by trusting him and obeying him. Are you doing that today? Today? Are you aware of whether you're doing that today? Are you you looking to God to give you life today? Or are you looking to someone or something else? That's the test. That's the thing we need to be aware of. Where am I looking for life? And that's a test that, that Israel repeatedly failed in the Old Testament. Just again and again and again. Why? Why did she feel that test? Because she kept leaning the weight of her life on idols, on false gods, all manner of false gods, and instead of the one true God. And if you're not familiar with Deuteronomy 4 or haven't been with us since we began this sermon series, it's helpful to know that this passage is part of a, a longer sermon, a really big sermon probably a longer sermon than any of us would want to sit for, that Moses preached to the people of Israel just before she entered the promised land of Canaan. She's getting ready to go in. Moses is preparing her through this sermon. And this part of it contains two things, a sober warning and a precious promise. Warning and a promise. The warning is found in verses 15 to 28. Moses is answering the question here, why should you flee idolatry? Why should we flee idolatry? And the promise is found in verses 29 through 31. Moses answers this question. How should we respond to idolatry? What do we do if we recognize we we haven't fled it? We haven't avoided it. We've gone headlong into it. And that's where we're at. What do we do when we, we realize we've fallen away from worshiping the one true God? And, and we've been chasing an idol. Let's begin with the warning. Moses cuts right to the chase with the warning in verse 15. Look there. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. I want you to think with me for just a minute. 
about all the things you're likely to watch this year. Maybe even all the things you watched over the last two weeks. A lot of us had some time off, new routines. What, what did you watch? There, I imagine this year you're, you're prone to watch things like football. Highly recommended. <laughs> or the stock market. Or your weight. Or your kids. Or, or new movies. Or your grades. Or what what your friends are doing or what your friends are thinking about what you're doing or what get posted on social media. I mean, the, the list of things that, that we, we tend to watch, we're prone to watch, just the list goes on. Friend, there is one thing that is most important for you to watch this year. One thing. You need to watch yourself. You need to tend well to the condition of your own soul. Not not to the exclusion of other priorities, but as your first and greatest priority. And not merely to watch, Moses says, but to watch carefully. See that? And not merely to watch carefully, but to watch what? Very carefully. Very carefully. You know, the images that come to my mind when I see those words are like a, a new mom watching her toddler who is standing around a roaring bonfire. She's watching carefully, very carefully. You know, or for you sports fans, the way Lionel Messi watches the opposing team. He's not just watching, he's watching carefully. He knows where everybody is. It's amazing. Very carefully. Why why is watching yourself carefully, very carefully, so important? Here's the simple answer, friend. Because the greatest spiritual dangers that you will face this year are not around you. They're inside of you. They're inside of me. They're within you. And that is the danger of idolatry. Look at verse 16. We sit, we need this so much. Beware, Moses says, lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure. And then Moses gives a long list of created things. It's actually the, the reverse order of creation in Genesis 1, concluding in verse 19, do not be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. And you read through this list and I think it's easy for us to just kind of Marvel from our 21st century Western relatively secular cultural context. Can you believe the primitive things they're doing here? <laughs> like really, you're gonna you're gonna make a you're gonna carve a wooden statue of a alligator, a snake, some reptile, and you're gonna think that's your God? I mean, how primitive. Well, we think that, friend, and all the while we're finding our identity in our work. Or we're chasing pleasure in sex. Or we're entertaining ourselves with, with hours of, of visual media. We, what, what do we worship? We worship our body image. We worship our reputation in the eyes of men. We, we worship our political tribe. We worship our our houses and our cars and our, and our bank accounts and the, the success of our children and a, and a thousand other things that, that all call from the heights, live for me, serve me, find your joy in me, devote yourself to me, I, I will satisfy your soul. So many of them, good things, right? Able to give you enduring life? Or joy, or peace? Not in the least. Because they're false gods. Pretenders all. They, they 
And yet they, re- they remain attractive to us for the same reason they were so attractive to Israel. Okay? What, what's so attractive about Id- idols? They feel like something we can control. Think about this. Some, something we can, we can use or we can leverage to get ourselves the good life in, in whatever way we want to define that, right? So, so we give more, we pursue more, we sacrifice more to that, that thing only to find, no matter how much we feed it, no matter how much money and time and energy and emotion and thought and our body we throw at it, it's never enough. And yet I want you to notice here, as we work through this passage, that, that Moses' objections to idolatry are not fundamentally therapeutic, okay? What do I mean by that? He doesn't elevate Israel's felt needs for agricultural prosperity or sexual fertility or protection from her enemies and say, okay, Israel, you got all these felt needs. Let's be reasonable. That statue can't help you with those, but God can. So on balance, you should go with God. No, okay? The reasons Moses gives to flee idolatry are not man-centered or felt-need-centered. They're gloriously God-centered. So I'm going to highlight four of them. But there are plenty more in this passage. All right? Here's the first. Verses 15 to 18. Why flee idolatry? Why avoid idolatry? Because God has told us who he is. Look at verse 15. Follow the logic here, okay? Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image. Moses knows the fundamental problem with idolatry and hasn't changed in all the thousands of years Since then, what's the problem? It functionally turns God into something he is not. Instead of embracing him for who he has revealed himself to be. That's the fundamental problem. He didn't reveal himself to Israel on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb in the form of a visible figure. He revealed himself through what? Through words. Out of the the burning splendor, the the inscrutable majesty of his holiness, the Lord made himself known by speaking to his people. Think about that. And, And the means by which God has chosen to reveal himself is the means on which we have to rely in order to know him and worship him and serve him for who he really is. Otherwise, what happens? We'll never worship him for who he is. We will worship false gods of our own making that, surprise, surprise, look just like us. (laughs) We we can't discover, friends, let, let alone create the one true God for ourselves, okay? If, if we are to know him for who he really is, then what has to happen? He has to make himself known for who he really is. And, that, and that's, what he's, that's what he's done through the gift of his word. That, that's why Deuteronomy isn't just the book of archaic laws that creative pastors use to find surprisingly helpful roads to Jesus. And, you know, otherwise we just sort of apologize for its existence, you know, and let's just get to the gospel as fast as possible. No, the gospel's in here, friend. (laughs) This whole book, no less than the entire Bible, is a, a glorious revelation of the character of an unchanging God. If you want to know him for who he is, you have to pay attention to the way he's made himself known, the gift of his word. And so the fundamental contrast here at the very beginning between between Yahweh and the idols of Canaan is the difference between false gods who have never spoken because they have no real existence and the living God, Yahweh, who has graciously made himself known through an authoritative word. So why is idolatry 
foolish. Reason one, because the true God, the only God, isn't something men create or men discover or men fashion. He is the God who makes himself known. He speaks, and in speaking, he distinguishes himself from every single rival. That's reason one. Here's the second. Wifely idolatry, because the creature is not the creator. Verse 19. Don't look at that and think, duh. Think carefully, okay? Because trouble lurks for us in all of this. Notice how Moses describes all the created things that Israel was tempted to worship at the end of verse 19. What does he say about all of them? The whole lot of them. These are things that the Lord your God has allotted or given or gifted or bestowed to all the peoples under the whole heaven. So so what was, go way back to Genesis. When God created man, what, what did he charge us to do? What was Israel responsible to do? To rule over God's creation on his behalf, right? Vice regents exercising his dominion. But what, what does idolatry do? When Israel pursues idols, what is she doing? Instead of ruling over the created order, she's placing herself under the created order. She's submitting to, worshiping, serving the created order. That's what idolatry always does. It it thinks and it feels and it acts as if the the creature is the creator. So, So when we're tempted to bow down, and serve things or people in the world around us as if they, they have ultimate power over our life. That's exactly the distinction we need to remember. That, that friend or that house or that car or that, that beach and the vacation it represents and it's all you can think about in your free time. That, all those things... Those are things God created. He made all that stuff. You you think that that created thing is awesome or or beautiful or worthy of praise? Well, well, guess who thought of it? (laughs) Who who sustains it? Who, Who fashioned Every atom of which it consists before you took your first breath. God did. All those things we're tempted to worship besides him, they're they're created things. And and ultimately, what do they do? They, They shout of the glory of the creator. They they mirror to you his majesty. And so so the right response to all the good gifts that surround us, all the created things God's blessed us with in this world is not to say, ah, possible idol, run, bad, you know, Jesus. (laughs) No, it's to recognize that the point of those gifts is to show us and lead us back to the giver of those gifts. The created things are not the creator but they lead us to the creator and they image the creator. Flee idolatry because the creature is not the creator. Reason number three. So arguably the most important in here. Verse 20. Why flee idolatry? Because the Lord has redeemed us for himself. Moses recognizes that in God's common grace, he has given all sorts of amazing created gifts to all men as expressions of his favor. But he also realizes, he knows there's something particular the Lord did for Israel. If you're a Christian, there's something particular the Lord did for you. He redeemed you. Verse 20, but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out 
of Egypt. To be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. (laughs) That's loaded. (laughs) Every single phrase in that. Moses is describing the exodus here, the physical exodus, the way the Lord delivered the Israelites out of physical slavery and death in Egypt. And throughout the whole rest of the Bible, what what is that a picture of, friend? It's a picture of the immeasurably greater deliverance from, from spiritual slavery to sin and death that Jesus won for us at the cross. The greater exodus through the greater Moses. And why did Jesus do that? Why did, why did he do, do what was necessary through his life, death, resurrection to redeem you from spiritual slavery to sin and death? We did it to draw you to himself. And he did it to give you a new identity as an adopted child of the living God. As you are this day. And that redemption price was high. Cost the life of God. And he paid it willingly and joyfully that he might have what? A people for his own inheritance. The Lord hasn't changed. Same mission, same plan. 1 Peter 2.10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. And so friend, know this. If, if you, when you turn away from trying to save yourself by keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules because we can do it either way, <laughs> and we turn toward trusting and obeying Jesus, you need to know this, okay? Who you are, your identity, the answer to the who am I question fundamentally changes. New answer. What are you, Christian? As Moses says in verse 20, consider who you are. What are you? Today, you are God's treasured possession. You are his blood-bought inheritance, and, and he's redeemed you that you might make much of him by enjoying him forever. He most certainly did not redeem us and rescue us and deliver us from spiritual slavery to sin and death. So having experienced that deliverance, we could turn around and walk right back into spiritual slavery. That's not the goal. And yet that's exactly what we're doing when we run to idols. Galatians 4 verse 8, formerly when you did not know God, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you go back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? I mean, it's like you just hear Paul like, what? (laughs) You got to be kidding me. Except Paul was a humble man. And he saw the same temptation in his own heart. So why should you flee idolatry? In short, because the, the kingdom of God, the blessings of that kingdom that, that Jesus Christ has brought you into, Christian, are exceedingly and infinitely better than slavery in the kingdom of this world. Exceedingly better. As Moses says twice, look at verses 21 and 22, it is a good land, a beautiful land, a glorious land. And the contrast in verse 22 in particular between this land outside God's place and that land in God's place is striking and intentional, and deliberate, because Moses wants us to recognize that the place God brings us into is so much better than whatever place idols 
lead us. And in verse 23, he reminds us that idolatry, given our redemption, is fundamentally a relational offense. Look at verse 23. Take care lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make a carved image. You, you realize the, the, the problem with an idol. It isn't just that we're loving a created thing too much. That's not the core problem. The problem is that in so doing, we are forsaking our covenant relationship with God. That's the problem. We're, we're spurning his promises. We're, we're denying his faithfulness. We're, we're betraying the lover of our soul. So why flee idolatry? Top of the mountain reason for you, Christian, what is it? Because the Lord Jesus has redeemed you for himself. Here's the fourth reason. Why flee idolatry? Because God is jealous for his glory. Verses 24 to 28. If you look at verses 25 to 27, Moses describes in detail exactly what will happen if Israel exchanges devotion to Yahweh for an idol. So what's what's going to happen? Well, life in the land will be replaced with exile, right? And a multitude of offspring will become what? Few in number. And I think all those consequences, they're, they're both inevitable and they're devastating. And the timing of it all is sobering. When is this going to happen? Look at verse 25. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, that's when it's going to go down, Israel. I, I so appreciated, and we did not plan this together, <laughs> the way Caleb prayed for older saints this morning. Because old age is no guarantee of spiritual maturity. Okay? You, you, please hear this. You can have plenty of gray hair on your head and plenty of spiritual foolishness in your heart. Okay? Do, do not assume that because you're growing older, I had a birthday this weekend, Lord guard me from assuming that because I'm growing older that I'm becoming more godly. I would argue that in fact, the opposite is often true, that the older we get, the, the more susceptible our hearts are to, to worshiping, to, to craving, to to looking to physical comfort and convenience and security in this world for our life and happiness. In my experience, that temptation increases the older I get. At any age, we're vulnerable to the trap that Moses identifies in verse 25. Look there. If you act corruptly by making a carved image and by doing what is evil, in the sight of the Lord, your God. Notice the connection. Making a carved image, doing what is evil. Practicing idolatry, committing sin. What's, what's the point? That sinful behavior is always rooted in spiritual idolatry. I want to linger here for a moment because, because we can totally miss this, okay? We can forget this. In our minds, we tend to think that our problems are purely behavioral, right? These actions are wrong. Probably shouldn't have done that in 22. These actions are right. Hope I can do more of them in 23. If you want to grow in godliness, what do you need to do? It doesn't take a rocket science. Quit with the wrong actions. Kick it in with the right actions. You ever heard that? Or thought that? Or been told that? Just stop the wrong behavior. Just start the right behavior. Friend, 
Please hear me. That is not the way people change. Never. It's not the way anybody changes. I'll give you an example, okay? And some of you have heard this before. But, but here's an, a humbling example. Why, why, why do I tend to get impatient on family vacations when fights break out in the back seat? Why do I do that? Okay, let's let's little exercise in self-awareness of the preacher start here, okay? It is because in that moment, true confession, that I have exchanged worshiping God for worshiping something else. What? No, no, this isn't about worship. We did that on Sunday. This is about the crazies in the back seat. I'm very aware of the crazies in the back seat. <laughs> what I'm saying to you is that this is about exchanging worshiping God for worshiping something else. Well, what do you mean? Well, I'm looking for life and having a peaceful and quiet car ride. I'm looking for a peaceful and quiet car ride, which is the least I deserve, you know, to satisfy my soul. To deliver me the good life. The vacation I paid for, daggone it. (laughs) So, when that's what I'm worshiping, when, when that is my chosen God, when that is the thing that in my heart, right, in that moment, I am convinced will give me the good life. My precious. <laughs> what happens when the kids create a ruckus? Well, I get angry because you're denying me the good life. <laughs> but the problem isn't the kids. Well, they have their own issues. <laughs> but why did I get impatient? Because I am worshiping an idol. I'm being Israel. So, how will I grow? Do I need to buckle down and use more self-control? You know, seatbelt on your body, seatbelt on your mouth. <laughs> right? Or do I need to focus on speaking nicer words in a quiet voice that effectively hides the seething anger in my soul? <laughs> right? Well, that's a band-aid that's not going to, you know, that I'll bleed through in a few minutes, right? What, what needs to change? I need to stop bowing down in my heart to the false God of a peaceful and quiet car ride. I mean, you realize in the moment, I am literally saying, oh, peaceful and quiet car ride, satisfy my soul. Right? I'm assuming the reason you're laughing with me at me is because you know what I'm talking about. I I need to stop bowing down to the God, the the false God of a peaceful and quiet courage. And I need to start bowing down and trusting and worshiping and treasuring and looking for my life and finding my joy and my security and my gladness and my strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. All of that back in God. In verse 25, Moses reminds Israel that the the evil, the sin we commit against other people on a horizontal level is always just an expression of sin against God on a vertical level. And you won't ever change on this level until things begin to change in the way you're relating to God. That's the point. We stop worshiping him. We begin worshiping something else. And that's right when we sin. All sin. Every single human sin is rooted in idolatry. And it provokes the Lord to anger. Why? Because God is 
jealous for his glory. Look at verse 24. Verses 25 through 27 tell us what will happen to those who serve idols, the consequences, the painful consequences. Verse 24 gives us the reason why. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. He's a jealous God. I I think in general, we we don't tend to think of jealousy as a good thing. You know? Uh, coveting, bad thing, not good. But, but when scripture speaks of God as a jealous God, that's an exceedingly good thing, friend. Why, why do I say that? It, it's good for him and it's good for us. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Succinctly as I can put this, God's highest and greatest commitment is not to you. It's to himself. It's not to your glory, It's to his glory. No one is more self-centered and gloriously so than God. Think about that. And it's both good and right because no one is more glorious than God. Right? So if God were not God-centered, jealous for his glory, he would cease to be God. Okay? He would become what? An idolater like you and me. And, and, but instead of that, what is he? In, instead, the very God-centeredness of God is what hold, upholds the entire moral foundation of the universe. But because he's righteously and wholeheartedly committed to his glory, he, he can't just sit idly by while those he created for his glory use the life he gave them to violate and oppose and, and scar and denigrate and spit on his glory. The, the jealousy of God, the holy jealousy of God, is, is what compels him to consume and oppose all that resists his glory. And that is good. That's why there are consequences for sin in the world, for disobeying God. You know, if, if the weight of God's glory were just a little light trifling thing, sin would not be a big deal. Oh, well, we all make mistakes. I'm sure God understands. He does not understand, friend. He grieves. And his jealousy is, jealousy is aroused, awakened. Because the weight of God's glory is not a... Lord, help us. It's not a light thing. It's an exceedingly holy and precious and glorious thing, which, which is why sin is such a big deal. You know, what, what, what we perceive in all our cultural enlightenedness as, as just normal. Well, of course they're going to move in together. I mean, why get married? Is there a tax benefit? No? Okay, go for it. That's normal. What we perceive as normal, God rightly perceives as an assault on his royal majesty. And so if you set yourself against him, friend, by by refusing to submit to his word, he, he can't tolerate you or overlook you or just understand you. Holy jealousy demands that he oppose you and eventually, that he destroy you. And that's why we have to take care to avoid idolatry. But because whether you choose to, to live for Jesus or not, think, think about this. It's, those aren't like religious options on a menu of moral equals. Okay? That choice is about whether you will give God or deny God the glory that is due his name. That's what it's about. And if you choose to deny him that glory, don't console yourself with platitudes and excuses like, well, I guess we'll just see how everything works out in the end. Who really knows? 
friend, we, we know exactly how things are going to work out in the end because God has told us how they're going to work out in the end. His response to idolatry, both now and on the final day, is not ambivalent or neutral. It is, it is decisive. It is overwhelming. It is just, look at verse 26, you will utterly perish. In the same verse, you will be utterly destroyed. Why must we flee idolatry? Because it is not a light peccadillo. It's about whether you will live or die. That's not an exaggeration. God is jealous for his glory. Those are just a few of the reasons that we should flee idolatry and not serve gods, verse 28, of wood and stone, the work of human hands that can neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And you know, by the end of verse 28, working through this, you really think, Moses, are you just on like a pessimistic kick? (laughs) Because you start out with this, if you forget thing, but then by verse 28, it just feels like a done deal. Like, Like idolatry is just where we're all heading. How about appealing to our better angels? Friend, Moses isn't on a pessimistic kick here. He's agreeing with everything the entire Bible says about the nature and doctrine of sin. That that we're born into this world with hearts that are, John Calvin said, idle factories. That's the bad news. But but here's the good news, friend, that the consequences of idolatry... Do not have to be the end of your story. There is hope found in the precious promises in verses 29 through 31. So I want to conclude with this because here Moses answers this question. What do we do when we recognize we've fallen into idolatry? What do we do? Well, we need to respond in two ways, okay? We'll end with this. What do you do? First thing, turn to the Lord, okay? Look at verse 29. But from there, from the land of exile, you will seek the Lord your God and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. You you realize that's that's a beautiful picture of repentance, of turning. Turning what? Turning away from worshiping idols and toward worshiping the Lord. And Moses gives us some really important lessons here about what biblical repentance, what that turn looks like, okay? First, repentance is relational. The turn's relational, okay? It it means more than just stop it with worshiping idols in a negative sense. It means what? Seeking the Lord in a positive sense. So, So instead of spurning and ignoring him, you what? You take time to listen to him and talk to him and know him and confess your sin, and ask for his help, and trust him, and obey him. True repentance always begins with relating to God in a new kind of way. It's not behavioral at root, it's relational at its core. Moving toward God instead of away from him, okay? It's relational. Second, repentance is always possible. It's possible. I think sometimes we can feel like, well, I've just fallen too far. You know, I've heard this. My idolatry is too deep. Like, like I by- bypassed the floor called possibilities for existing change long time ago. And now the elevator of my life is down in the basement where it's like, well, I just, we're going to have to just deal with this. Inevitable consequences. That's my train. Friend, that's not God's perspective. Okay. Until Jesus returns, repentance is always possible. And and there's so much hope here in the the parallel between the beginning of verse 28 and the beginning of verse 29. Look at those verses with me. Moses says, there in exile, you will serve gods of wood and stone. Trouble coming. Bad things coming your way. But from there, the same there, you will seek the Lord your God. What's his point? That the very place Israel would come face to face with the pain of idolatry is the very place she would begin to repent and turn. 
very place. Right? Repentance isn't, think of it this way, turning from idolatry, repentance, it's not a privilege reserved for those who have kind of found a way to climb themselves out of the ditch a few feet. Okay? Repentance begins in the ditch. Because it's at the bottom of the ditch where you most need to seek the Lord. And where he's most eager to hear your cry and answer your cry. You're, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace, friend. Okay? Repentance is always possible. And lastly, biblical repentance, it's never in vain. It's relational. It's always possible. And it's never in vain. What, what does God promise through Moses in verse 29? If you seek the Lord, you will what? You'll find him. <laughs> really? Yes. Here's what that means. It means you must not say, well, pastor, I tried the whole repentance thing before and it didn't work. Hang with me here. Can I, can I admonish you a little bit? Because I love you. What do you mean it didn't work? Do you mean some of your troubles continued? Do you mean the temptation didn't fly away? Do you mean you, you didn't change as quickly as you wanted to? Do you mean God didn't fix the circumstances of your life the way you wanted him to? Or when you thought he should? Question for you, friend. If you didn't think repentance worked, Back then, when you tried whatever you thought repentance meant, question for you, were you seeking God at all? Were you seeking God? Were you seeking God? Or, or were, you, were you simply trying to use God to get all the goodies you want, or, or even to serve that idol you don't want to let go of. Seeking an end of trouble or temptation, seeking personal growth on your timetable, or, or seeking a, a change in your circumstances, none of those things are seeking God. They're not the same. Our, our repentance is never in vain if and only when our repentance is about seeking God, pursuing the Lord, running after him. Jeremiah 29, 13, 14, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. He doesn't say, New, easy circumstances will be found by you. The absence of continued marital conflict will be found by you. An end to all your sexual temptations will be found by you. No. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Biblical repentance means bringing your whole heart, all of you before all of God. And saying, Lord, I'm yours. Would you forgive me for spurning you? Would you forgive me for using you? I surrender. That's the first thing we do when we realize we've fallen in idolatry. We turn to the Lord. Here's the second and the final thing, okay? We hope in his mercy. We turn to the Lord. We hope in his mercy. Look at verse 30. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days... You will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. I read that this week and I thought, Moses, have you momentarily forgotten to whom it is you are preaching? <laughs> right? I mean, this is like you are talking to, we've never met an idol. We weren't interested in worshiping Israel. <laughs> right? How, how could he know? How could he know, let alone promise, that, that a remnant, that anyone for that matter, would turn and repent? 
Friend, his confidence had nothing to do with Israel. It had everything to do with God. And what Moses knew of his unchanging character, look at verse 31. It's the reason for the promise in 30. For ground, reason, causality, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, Israel. Stunning. He's not a God who, who treats us according to our sins. Praise be the Lord. He's, he's not a God who says, fine. You want nothing to do with me? I want nothing to do with you. <laughs> right? He's a compassionate God. He's a loving God. A God, who, a God who delights in the greatness of his mercy to take men and women like us that are enslaved, thoroughly given over to idolatry and giving us both a will to repent and a desire to repent and a power to repent that by his sovereign grace, we might turn back to the Lord. He's merciful. Which means this repentance from idolatry is not a work of merit or, or something you have to gin up, okay? Is it a real choice? Yes. Do you have to decide to turn away from that false God and toward the one true God? Yes, okay? But take comfort in this, friend, that that, that turn, that repentance whether it happens at the beginning of your life, middle of your life, or on your deathbed, wherever that turn is taking place, and may it, may it take place over and over and over and over and over again, that turn is always a gift of grace. It's a supernatural thing. It's a gift of mercy from the God who owes you nothing and to whom you owe everything. He's a God who remains. He will not leave you. He's a God who pardons. He will not destroy you. And he's a God who remembers he will not forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to him. Why? Because he is an exceedingly merciful God. Does he burn with holy anger? Yes. Does he burn with eternal compassion? Yes. Where do justice and love meet? what's in the cross of Christ. There's a tension here between verse 24 and verse 31, between the jealousy of God, the consuming fire of God, and the mercy of God that is not resolved until we reach a hill called Calvary. Because what do we see at the cross? We see the holy, consuming fire of God's wrath against sin. And at the very same place, what else do we see? That because God endured that death for your sake, Christian, that you might be freed and delivered from all the consequences of idolatry you deserve, that because he did that for you, he can now, through Christ, be exceedingly merciful and gracious and compassionate to you without sacrificing his jealousy or compromising his mercy. Jealousy and mercy are not halves of God or intention within God. They are who God fully and completely in all that he is, always is. Were it not for that mercy, there's not a person in this room that would touch repentance. Our hearts are too proud, aren't they? We cling to our idols. Praise God, he is greater than our hearts. The point of this passage is a warning and a promise. What's the warning? Guard your heart from idolatry. Good reasons for that. A lot of them. <laughs> What's the promise? Hope in the prevailing mercy of God. Put that together. Here's your goal for 23. Guard your heart from idolatry confident in the prevailing mercy of God. Let's pray. Lord, were it not for your mercy, this whole repentance turning from idle thing would most certainly not be a joy. It would be a frightening, dutiful drudgery. 
Thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Thank you for the way your holy jealousy pushes us away from idolatry. And thank you for the way your steadfast mercy pulls us out of idolatry. You you push us out and you pull us out and you keep pushing and warning and you keep pulling and promising till the day you get your people home, God. And so we pray this year that you would make us a people every day that walk the road of repentance from idolatry and that you would give us the self-awareness to see where we need your mercy and to cry out to you for mercy and to say help to you by saying help to one another that we might resist and flee idolatry in the context of community. Do that, I pray, Lord. Strengthen our faith as we sing this final song. Amen.